from CJBT Productions, the team that brings you the Music Halls of Fame podcast, comes the Music History Today daily podcast, where we bring you a quick daily briefing of the musical events, births, and passings that happened on that particular day. So, if you love music and history, then please like, subscribe, and share the Music History Today daily podcast out every day on Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, Google, Apple, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast from. The following is a CJBT Productions podcast. This is the Music Halls of Fame podcast, episode number seven. This week, we honor the year 1992 and a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame class of 1992. We look at the case for putting in excess into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and our spotlight museum is the National Jazz Museum in Harlem, New York City. This podcast celebrates those who have been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We'll also look at the case for certain artists to be inducted into the hall who aren't there yet. Plus, every week we'll discuss a different musical Hall of Fame, Walk of Fame, or Museum, and celebrate someone who's been inducted into them. Let's start with our main focus of the podcast, which is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The Hall Foundation was established on April 20th, 1983 former Atlantic Records chairman Ahmet Erdogan was the head of the foundation at the time. Three years later, a committee chose Cleveland, Ohio to be the site of the physical location for the museum over Detroit, New York City, Philadelphia, Memphis, and Cincinnati. I say physical location because members have actually been inducted into the hall since 1986 before the building was even opened. Cleveland, Ohio was chosen due to what DJ Alan Freed did to promote rock and roll, including mainstreaming the phrase rock and roll, which was originally black slang for sex, and for holding the first rock and roll concert in Cleveland. Ground was broken for the building on June 7, 1993. The building opened on September 1, 1995 at 1100 Rock and Roll Boulevard on the shore of Lake Erie. The hall gets over 400,000 visitors a year on average. Normal hours of operation are 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., except for Thursdays when they're open until 9 p.m. They're normally open later in the summer months. General admission at the moment is $30, children 6 through 12 are $20, college students, first responders, military members, and Northeast Ohio residents are $25, and kids 5 and under Hall of Fame members and Cleveland residents are free. ID is required to get the discounts. Rockhall.com is their website. That's R-O-C-K-H-A-L-L dot C-O-M. As with all places these days, due to COVID restrictions, check with the website for updated information and hours. 
The criteria for being inducted into the hall was originally that, quote, artists have to have had released their first record 25 years earlier and have created music whose originality, impact, and influence has changed the course of rock and roll. End quote. That interpretation has been updated in recent decades to include music that rock and roll influenced, like reggae and country and hip-hop, and also youth culture that music has influenced and vice versa, which is why hip-hop artists have been inducted. The different categories that people can be inducted for are, for starters, musical excellence, which is for artists, musicians, songwriters, and producers who have had a dramatic impact on music, Early influencers, who are artists whose music influence rock music and youth culture like jazz and blues. The Amit Erdogan Award, which is named for famed record executive Amit Erdogan, and goes to a non-performer who's had an impact like record executives and managers. There's also a category that inducted songs that have influenced music. For instance, the Trog's classic Wild Thang and also Sam the Sham and the Pharaoh's Wooly Bully. Of course, the most popular category is the performers category, which has everyone from Elvis to Tina Turner. The different nominating committees decide who will make the official ballots for that year, and then the ballots are sent to a thousand musicologists, executives, performers, and other experts. The fans also get a chance to vote, with that vote usually being held on the hall's website. Then from that, the final inductees are chosen. Now then, with all that being said, let's take a look at this week's honoree. The year was 1992. The yearly inflation rate in America was 3.03%. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closed the year at 3,301. The Federal Reserve interest rate at the end of the year was 6%. Average cost of a new house was $122,500. Average income for the year was $30,030. Average monthly rent was $519, average cost of a new car was $16,950, and a gallon of gas back then cost you $1.05. Arkansas Governor Bill Clinton beat sitting President George Herbert Walker Bush to become the next President of the United States. Serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer was sentenced to life in prison. He would be killed in jail by another inmate in 1994. The Bosnian War started in earnest when Serbian army troops grabbed the city of Sarajevo. The Los Angeles riots began after four police officers were acquitted of beating motorist Rodney King. Algerian President Mohamed Boudiaf was assassinated by one of his own bodyguards. The Israeli Labor Party under Yitzhak Rabin won the Israeli election. Colombia drug lord Pablo Escobar escaped from his pretty swanky, luxurious prison cell. He would eventually be tracked down and killed in 1993. 
Hurricane Andrew slammed into Florida, then crossed the Florida Peninsula and made its way to Louisiana, killing 23 people and causing billions of dollars in damage in the process. Famous people who were born in 1992 include actors Taylor Lautner, Cole and Dylan Sprouse, the two twins, models Cara Delevingne and Erica Castell, soccer player Neymar, football player Odell Beckham Jr., and basketball player Kyrie Irving. Famous people who passed away in 1992 include Sam Walton, who started Walmart, actors Anthony Perkins, Robert Reed, Marlena Dietrich, Benny Hill, Sam Kinison, Sterling Holloway, Georgia Brown, Dick York, Chuck Connors, Jack Kelly, Stella Adler, Shirley Booth, Robert Beatty, Jose Ferrer, Dana Andrews, Lillian Powell, Neville Brand, Nancy Walker, Vincent Gardenia, and Robert Morley. Also, director Hal Roach, computer scientist Grace Hopper, writer Isaac Asimov, poet Audre Lorde, cartoonist Peyo, and geneticist Barbara McClintock. The Nobel Peace Prize went to Rigoberto Menchu from Guatemala for her work for social justice for indigenous people. U.S. President-elect at the time, Bill Clinton, became Time Magazine's Person of the Year, while Nick Nolte was named People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive. In technology, Microsoft introduced Windows 3.1. The term PDA was first used. The Michelangelo computer virus took hold. The first SMS text message was first sent. The Internet Society was formed, as was Macromedia and Palm. Speaking of Palm, the first Palm Pilot came out in 1992. IBM showed off the first ThinkPad and the first smartphone years before Apple perfected them. And people in 1992 first started using reusable alkaline batteries. In video gaming, there was Super Mario Kart, Wolfenstein 3D, Street Fighter 2, and Mega Man both 4 and 5. And Europe got the SNES, the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. And Apple killed the Apple II series. Rest in peace, Apple II rest in power. The most popular books of 1992 included Donna Tartt's The Secret History, John Grisham's The Pelican Brief, Diana Gabaldon's Dragonfly and Amber, John Gray's Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, Michael Connolly's The Black Echo, Robert Jordan's The Shadow Rising, Stephen King's Gerald's Game, Michael on Dutch Knees, The English Patient, and Stephen Ambrose's Band of Brothers. In TV for 1992, Cartoon Network started that year, as did The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, Barney and Friends, The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, Deaf Comedy Jam, Melrose Place, Batman the Animated Series, Red Shoe Diaries, Goof Troop, the MTV Movie Awards, The Sci-Fi Channel, California Dreams, The Rush Limbaugh TV Show, Picket Fences, and Mad About You. 
TV shows ending in 1992 were The Cosby Show, Growing Pains, Who's the Boss, MacGyver, the first time around at least, Night Court, also the first time around, and Darkwing Duck. The top 10 TV shows for the 1992 season were 60 Minutes, Roseanne, Home Improvement, Murphy Brown, Murder, She Wrote, Coach, Monday Night Football, the CBS Sunday Night Movie. Yes, they actually did a night just for movies. And they weren't the only network. Back in the day, as they say. Rounding out the top ten, by the way, were Cheers and Full House. At the Emmy Awards that year, Murphy Brown won Best Comedy and Northern Exposure won Best Drama. Murphy Brown, by the way, also became part of the political campaigns for 1992 when then U.S. Vice President Dan Quayle mentioned Murphy Brown's character concerning abortion. He took the anti-abortion stance. Then the show just kind of went with it and created an entire episode based on what Dan Quayle said. In 1992, the biggest movie, by the way, was Disney's Aladdin. Also big in 1992 were The Bodyguard, Home Alone 2 Lost in New York, Basic Instinct, Lethal Weapon 3, Batman Returns, A Few Good Men, Sister Act, Bram Stoker's Dracula, and Wayne's World. At the Academy Awards, the big winner was Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven, which won Best Picture, Clint Eastwood for Best Director, and Gene Hackman for Best Supporting Actor. Emma Thompson won Best Actress for Howard's End. Al Pacino won Best Actor for Scent of a Woman. And Marissa Tomei won Best Supporting Actress for My Cousin Vinny. In the music categories, Aladdin swept them with Alan Menken's soundtrack winning Best Score and A Whole New World winning Best Song. And that Aladdin was the original cartoon or slash animated version with Robin Williams playing the genie, not the new live action version. In sports, the Washington Redskins, as they were known as back then, not the Washington national team, won the Super Bowl which was held in 1993 for the 1992 season at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California. Michael Jackson, by the way, was the halftime show entertainment that year. The Miami Hurricanes won the NCAA College Football Championship. The Winter Olympics were held in Albertville, France. The Summer Olympics were held in Barcelona, Spain, where the fabled USA men's basketball dream team won the gold medal. The Toronto Blue Jays won the World Series. The Duke Blue Devils won the NCAA Men's College Basketball Tournament. Stanford won the NCAA Women's College Basketball Tournament. The Chicago Bulls won the NBA Championship. Riddick Bowe won the Undisputed Boxing Heavyweight Championship belt. Miguel Indurain won the Tour de France. Lil E.T. won the Kentucky Derby, but could not complete the Triple Crown, losing both the Preakness and the Belmont Stakes. And the Pittsburgh Penguins won hockey Stanley Cup. In auto racing, Emerson Fittipaldi won the IndyCar Championship, while Bobby Rahal won the Kart Championship. Alan Kulwicki won the NASCAR Winston Cup Championship. And Nigel Mansell 
won the Formula One Racing Championship. In golf, Freddie Couples won the Masters Golf Tournament, Tom Kite won the U.S. Open, Nick Faldo won the British Open, and Nick Price won the PGA Championship. On the women's side, Dottie Mokree won the Nabisco Dinosaur Tournament, Betsy King won the LPGA Tournament, Patty Sheehan won the U.S. Women's Open, and Sherry Steinhauer won the Dumarier Classic. In tennis, Jim Courier won the Australian and the French Open. Andre Agassi won Wimbledon, and Stefan Edberg won the U.S. Open. On the women's side, Monica Seles won all of the major tournaments except for Wimbledon, where Steffi Graf ended up winning. In soccer, Leeds United won the English Premier League, at that time called the Football League First Division. Barcelona won Spain's La Liga. Milan won Italy's Serie A, Marseille won France's League One, and VSB Stuttgart won Germany's Bundesliga. 1992 turned out to be a watershed year for music. Nirvana's Nevermind album hit number one on Billboard's album chart, bringing grunge officially into the mainstream. 1992 was also the year that the new kids on the block were accused of lip-syncing at their concerts. Sinead O'Connor ripped up a photo of the Pope on Saturday Night Live to protest Catholic priest abuse. Vince Neil left Motley Crue the first time around. Ronnie James Dio left Black Sabbath. Rob Halford left Judas Priest. The Freddie Mercury tribute concert took place. Mariah Carey's Unplugged album got her career back on track. Kurt Cobain married Courtney. Whitney married Bobby Brown. David Bowie married Iman. Michael Jackson had his Dangerous Tour, one of his last tours, actually. Ozzy Osbourne went on the first of his many farewell tours. I believe we're now up to number 20. Manchester, England's famous factory record label declared bankruptcy, and the recording industry stopped putting CDs into those long cardboard boxes, and also MP3 was developed. Not for music, though, at that time. It was actually developed for video compression, at least back in 1992. The biggest-selling album, according to Billboard magazine, was Garth Brooks's classic Rope in the Wind. Garth, by the way, also had the sixth biggest-selling album of that year with No Fences. Other top-selling albums for 1992 came from Michael Jackson, Nirvana, Billy Ray Cyrus, U2, Metallica, Michael Bolton, and Criss Cross. The biggest-selling single of 1992, according to Billboard magazine, was Boys to Men's long-running number one, End of the Road. The rest of the top ten were Sir Mix-a-Lot's Baby Got Back, Criss Cross's Jump, Vanessa Williams' Saves the Best for Last, TLC's Baby, 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 Eric Clapton's Tears in Heaven, and Vogue's My Lovin', No, You're Never Gonna Get It. Red Hot Chili Peppers, Under the Bridge, Color Me Bad's All for Love, and John Cicada's Just Another Day. Artists who were born in 1992 include Selena Gomez, Cardi B, Miley Cyrus, Travis Scott, Demi Lovato, Nick Jonas, 21 Savage, Jin 
from BTS, Mac Miller, Lil Durk, DJ Marshmallow, Sam Smith, Madeline Bailey, Candy Ken, and Jade Thurwall. Artists who unfortunately passed away in 1992 include singers Eddie Kendricks, Chalino Sanchez, Mary Wells, Willie Dixon, Roger Miller, Roy Acuff, Carmen de la Isla, guitarist Albert King, saxophonist George Adams, composers Joe Newman and John Cage, entertainer Peter Allen, drummer Jeff Piccaro of Toto, band leader Lawrence Welk, and DJ Larry Levan. At the Grammy Awards for Music of 1992, Eric Clapton's Unplugged album won Album of the Year, his song Tears in Heaven won Record and Song of the Year, and Arrested Development won Best New Artist. At the Eurovision Singing Contest, which was held in Malmo, Sweden, Linda Martin from Ireland won for the song Why Me. At the Tony Awards, Crazy for You won Best Musical, and Guys and Dolls won Best Revival. At the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony, the hall inducted producer Doc Pomus, Leo Fender, inventor of the Fender electric guitar, and concert promoter Bill Graham, all of them into the non-performers category. Elmore James and Professor Longhair were inducted into the early influencers category, and in the performers category, the hall inducted Bobby Blue Bland, Booker T and the MGs, the Isley Brothers, Sam and Dave, the Yardbirds, Jimi Hendrix, and this next artist. There are certain artists who transcend their respective musical genres. Johnny Cash was one such artist. His chosen genre was country, for which he is an icon. He also had gospel, blues, and folk songs, along with some rock and roll songs from his days at Sun Records. His rebellious rock and roll swagger earned him the nickname The Outlaw. His all-black stage outfits earned him another nickname, The Man in Black. His lifestyle was pure rock and roll. In short, he lived life his way. In the early 1960s, Johnny had a serious drug problem. He and his friend Waylon Jennings were both addicted to amphetamines and barbiturates. They took them to deal with the rigors of touring, unfortunately. But Johnny, who was married at the time to Vivian Liberto, was also having an affair with singer June Carter, whom he had met while on tour. Those two, who would later get married and stay married until June's death, were two hot flames that burned bright for each other, and they were both extremely infatuated with each other. The song Ring of Fire has one of two stories that goes with it, and which one you believe depends on which person is telling it, I guess. 
According to June Carter, she wrote the song Ring of Fire to describe the love she felt for Johnny. She knew that he was married and that he also had major drug problems, but she just couldn't stay away from him, like a moth to a flame. So she wrote the song to describe their love. Johnny then added the mariachi horns to the song because he dreamt about a mariachi band and thought that it would kind of be cool to add them to the song. Why not? Of course, there's also the jilted wife's story. According to Vivian's book on her marriage to Cash, June's story is, well, let's be nice about it, false. Quote, To this day, it confounds me to hear the elaborate details June told of writing that song for Johnny. She didn't write that song any more than I did. The truth is, Johnny wrote that song while pilled up and drunk about a certain private female body part. All those years of her claiming she wrote it herself, and she probably never knew what the song was really about. End quote. Ouch. Well, okay then. You know, for my money, I kind of prefer June's version of the story much better, but that's not bad. Anyway, June's sister Anita Carter released Ring of Fire as a single first on her own album. And on March 25th, 1963, Johnny and June recorded the song and released it on April 19th, 1963. The Cash's version went to number one on the country chart and crossed over into the pop chart where it peaked at number 17. Now, one of Johnny's greatest albums actually had its genesis back in the 1950s. In 1951, Staff Sergeant Johnny Cash was serving in the U.S. Air Force, where he sat in the theater in Landsberg, Bavaria, West Germany. He and his fellow servicemen watched a movie called Inside the Walls of Folsom Prison. It inspired Johnny to write a song about the prison. He took parts of the song that he used from Gordon Jenkins' Crescent City Blues, for which he paid $75,000 after a copyright infringement lawsuit because you can't take someone's song without paying them, Johnny. Anyway... Johnny was also inspired to write the most famous line in the song, but I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. By thinking of the worst possible thing one human could do to another. When he left the Air Force, Johnny recorded his song called Folsom City Blues in 1955. Fast forward to the mid-1960s now. As the mid-1960s went on, Johnny Cash's career was actually in decline. For years, he had been abusing the drugs, and his albums had not been selling well for a few years. He eventually got treatment for his addictions for the first time around 1967. He would actually be on and off drugs a number of times throughout his life. However, In 1967, his record label changed leadership, and it was at this point that Johnny decided to tell the label about his idea of performing and recording prison concerts. Johnny Cash actually started doing prison concerts back in the late 1950s, but had not recorded them for release. 
In fact, at one of his prison concerts, a young man serving time for armed robbery saw Cash performing and decided that when he got out of prison, he would learn the guitar and make it big on his own. He ended up being another country legend, a legend by the name of Mr. Merle Haggard. The record label loved the idea, by the way, of recording the prison concerts. So they put out inquiries to two prisons, Folsom Prison and San Quentin. Concerts were eventually held at both, but Folsom was the first to say yes, so they were first up. Johnny got a band together consisting of his old Sun Records label mate and friend, Carl Perkins, the country group The Statler Brothers, Luther Perkins, W.S. Holland, and Johnny's wife, June Carter. And after a couple of days' rehearsal, they held two concerts on January 13, 1968. One of those concerts was at 9.40 in the morning, and another one was held at 12.40 in the afternoon, just in case the first one wasn't good enough for the recording. Turns out, it was actually the second concert that wasn't any good, as everyone was tired after the first one, and the concerts were actually too close together time-wise. In fact, only two of the songs from the second concert ever made it onto the album. Carl Perkins started the show with his hit Blue Suede Shoes, and then the Statler Brothers performed... Cash came on stage, gave his now famous introduction, Hello, I'm Johnny Cash, and started playing Folsom Prison Blues. At the line about killing a man in Reno just to watch him die, somehow, not surprisingly, the prisoners cheered and screamed. The rest of the concert went on, and everybody seemed pretty pleased with the results, actually. The album for the concert was released in May of 1968. The album hit the pop charts first and then hit the country charts. Eventually, the album hit number one on the country chart and went to top 15 on the pop chart. The only hiccup to the album happened due to, well, bad timing. The album was gaining in popularity when Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated in June of 1968. The record label edited the line, I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die, out of Folsom Prison Blues, despite protests from Cash. Regardless, the album became a big hit for Cash and helped to rejuvenate his career. Coincidentally, another ex-Sons record label mate would also rejuvenate his career during that same summer of 1968 with a concert of his own. Elvis Presley, with his televised comeback concert on NBC. For the record, Johnny's 1969 concert at San Quentin Prison, that album, would also go to number one on the country chart. The Man in Black was back, where he would stay as the outlaw until his death in 2003. He is one of the few artists to have been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Gospel Hall of Fame, the Country Music Hall of Fame, and the Music City Walk of Fame. Presented for induction by Mr. Lyle Levitt, the man in black, the outlaw, Johnny Cash. Inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, class of 1980.
92. We're continuing our look at the artists who will be eligible for induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for the first time next year, 2022, since their first year of eligibility will be that year. What we do in this particular series is we make the case both for the artist and against the artist. This week, it's InSync's turn. Yep, feel old, people. It's been 25 years since the band started. As always, to the tale of the tape we go. InSync's only released four studio albums before breaking up, with one of those albums being a Christmas album. Their first album got as high as number two on the album chart, but it went ten times platinum. Their Christmas album went to number seven and sold two million copies. Their last two albums both went to number one with celebrities selling five million copies and No Strings Attached selling over 11 million copies. In fact, they are one of only a few artists who have sold more than 10 million copies of two or more albums. Plus, they were the ones who at one time held the record for the most album copies sold in the first week of release, with over 2.4 million copies sold in one week alone. Singles-wise, they only released 18 songs. Of those, 9 went top 40, with 6 going top 10, and 1, It's Gonna Be Me, going to number 1. I know, it seems like they should have had more number one songs, right? Considering how mega popular they were. However, not the case. They only had one. As far as awards went, the boys were nominated for eight Grammy Awards and one Juno Award, winning none of either. They were also nominated for 15 MTV Video Music Awards, winning seven of them, six Blockbuster Awards, back when Blockbuster was actually a thing, They won five of those, by the way. Seven Billboard Music Awards, winning five, and seven American Music Awards, winning three. The group also sold over 70 million records worldwide and helped to define the 2000s pop music scene, along with acts like the Backstreet Boys, Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, and every other Disney Channel actor from that era. Yet, despite all of that, the group stands zero chance of getting in, at least for the next decade. The reason? Well, here's the real simple argument against their induction. Um, they're a boy band. That tag's gonna hang on them for at least the next decade, and the Hall voters do not vote boy bands into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. However, We're just coming around to when the 9-11 decade is beginning to feel a little nostalgic, sort of. And I'm sure that by the end of the 2020s, we'll all be loving all the boy bands again, and we might even take them seriously. As of right now, the Hall voters, I don't think so. Therefore, I do not think that InSync will be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame until 
at least the year 2030, give or take a few years when the nostalgia kick kicks in again. Our Spotlight Museum this week is focused on the quintessential American music form known as jazz. The National Jazz Museum in Harlem in New York City was first thought of in 1995 and was the brainchild of attorney Leonard Garment, who was general counsel to U.S. Presidents Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford, and himself was a rather good jazz saxophonist. The museum opened in 1997 at 104 East 126th Street and stayed there until 2016, when it moved to its current location at 58 West 129th Street, just off of Malcolm X Boulevard. Take the two or three train to 125th Street and walk up a few short blocks and then turn right onto 129th Street if you're taking the subway. The museum has many exhibits and memorabilia. However, it is probably best known as a collection from audio engineer William Savory, who recorded radio broadcasts of many jazz greats using aluminum records in order to preserve his recordings longer. The museum has over a thousand of these recordings and is in the process of digitally cleaning them up. They've released a few of them on iTunes as the Savory Collection if you want to purchase them. I highly recommend that you check them out. They are all incredibly well done. The museum itself is a Smithsonian affiliate museum. Suggested museum admission is $10. Due to COVID restrictions, you still have to be vaccinated to go, at least as of this recording. The hours of operation for the museum as of right now are Thursday through Saturday, noon till 5 p.m. However, they have a rather extensive online collection. Go to jmih.org for more information. That's jmih.org to peruse their rather extensive online collection. One person who was recorded by William Savory was this next performer. This man was the ninth out of 12 kids. His father came from Poland and his mother came from Lithuania. They met in Baltimore and moved to Chicago, where our band leader was born. Their neighborhood was in the ghetto in the Maxwell Street neighborhood, and although the family didn't have any money, the father somehow managed to pay for his kids' music lessons. As the kid became interested in music, and while he was in Chicago, he learned from artists such as Johnny Dodds and Jimmy Noon. By the time he was 14, he was already playing professionally. His father, unfortunately, did not live to see his success. His dad tragically passed away in an accident when the kid was 17. After that, the kid moved to New York City and became a successful session musician. After a number of years, he got a band of his own together and started working in the supper clubs and got on a radio show on NBC called Let's Dance. And there, 
the band started playing a new style of music called swing. The radio show was popular enough, but became a victim of a strike and was canceled right in the middle of the Great Depression. And here is where history kind of takes a weird turn. The radio show lineup was such that the kids' band was on late in the evening, sometimes after midnight on the East Coast. And on the East Coast, that meant that most people hadn't heard his new style of music or of the band itself because, well, most of them were asleep. However, on the West Coast, the radio show was live, not taped, which meant that people were listening to this band around 9 o'clock in the evening. And it was there that the band and the swing style of music took hold. The band heard that kids on the West Coast had invented dances to do to their music, so they scrapped some money together and went to tour the West Coast. And little by little, the music and the dancing went from the West Coast to the East Coast and began to catch on. The rest is history. The music and the dancing became a cultural phenomenon known as swing music, and it's Pied Piper, the clarinetist and band leader, that kid, Benny Goodman, became the catalyst. But in 1938, Benny took it to the next level. In a lot of big cities in the world, there are certain concert venues that are considered highbrow, for lack of a better phrase. Maybe stuck up is actually a better way of putting it. These are places where your normal garage band wouldn't be caught dead in. Hell, you almost feel like you have to get dressed up in a Brooks Brothers suit just to walk by the places sometimes. These places usually have ballet companies and classical music played in them. New York City has quite a few of them, actually. Lincoln Center with the Metropolitan Opera House and Carnegie Hall. Carnegie Hall once was the main concert place for the New York Philharmonic Orchestra. It's still a pretty prestigious place for a musician to play. That old joke about how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. Yeah, that still rings true. It is a really nice feather in the cap and a bucket list item for musicians everywhere. It has since opened its doors to other types of music, and this next event helped with that. Back in the early part of the 20th century, jazz was not taken seriously in mainstream America, looked at at the time as black people's music, along with rock and roll in the mid-20th century. It developed a following but was not looked at in the same vein as classical music or standards. It took swing music and Benny Goodman to help to begin to change people's opinions about it. In 1938, Benny Goodman and swing music were at the height of their power. Goodman was selling out concert halls all across America. He was also a film and radio star at that point. And one day, his publicist came to him with an idea. How about the band play Carnegie Hall? At first, he laughed at the idea. It's like Justin Bieber playing at the Metropolitan Opera House. Then, he kind of talked himself into doing it. He had not only his band, but also members of the Count Basie and Duke Ellington orchestras in on this concert. Top ticket price, by the way, went for $2.75, which was a lot of money back in the day, especially in the Great Depression, which was still going around at that time. 
and also combined with the steady drumbeat of World War II coming ever so closer to American shores and American people. The concert itself was a smash, and although no one thought it was recorded, it actually was. You can get the concert on CD. What's now ironic is that jazz, once considered the bastard stepchild of, quote, real music, end quote, is now itself considered highbrow in many circles, including my old college, the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, where it was drilled into me on the regular that jazz was the best form of music along with classical and everything else was considered, well, trash. However, Benny Goodman was the one who actually broke down the barrier when he held a night of jazz music at Carnegie Hall on January 16, 1938. And it is the recording of this concert that made it into the Library of Congress National Recording Registry. And there's also more recordings of Benny's performances in the Savory Collection at the Jazz Museum of Harlem in New York City. And that is it for the Music Halls of Fame podcast, Episode 7. Thanks for listening. Audio engineering and editing, video editing, writing, narration, basically everything having to do with this podcast is done by yours truly. You can find us on our website at cjbtproductions.com. Our podcast is on all of your favorite podcast providers, such as Apple Music, Google Podcasts, CastBox, Spotify, etc., all under Music History Today. If you would like to support this podcast, our Patreon can be found at patreon.com backslash music history today we are also on twitter at music history day and you can now find us on youtube don't forget to like subscribe and hit that notification bell anytime you want to know exactly what videos are dropped and when all of those links can be found in the show notes below thank you very very much for listening